Today we'll be discussing the career of the late Pee Wee Herman, and we'll be discussing hernias. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asadoja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Last month, Paul Rubens, also known as Pee Wee Herman, passed away. So for today's episode, we'll be reviewing his life and career. And in the second half, we'll be discussing inguinal hernias. Ouchie! Okay, Ali, so let's start off talking about the late, great Paul Rubens, also known as Pee Wee Herman. I keep calling him Pee Wee Herman, but of course, that's his character's name. But famous for the past, like, 40 years has been a pop culture fixation. So let's let's maybe talk a bit he about He did not, as far as we know, have hernias, by the way. These things are not related. No. He did have a cancer, and at this point, we're not really sure. It wasn't really revealed what it was and, and, you know, so right. you know, how it took his life and all that. So these are not connected, but yeah, I think if you meet people who are, what do you want to say? North of 40, they will have a connection to Pee Wee yeah. Herman or even less than that. If I meet somebody who's my age who doesn't know Pee Wee Herman, I, you start asking some questions. It would like, be a bit you, unusual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Were you raised in a cave and what happened? Yeah. So let's talk a bit about his life and career. I want to get your specific thoughts on a few things, Ali. So he grew up in Sarasota, Florida, kind of between there and I think New York, New Jersey area. His father was an automobile salesperson. His mother was a teacher, but his father had flown in Britain's Royal Air Force and in the U.S. Army as well in World War II. And then when the state of Israel came about, he was one of the founding pilots of the Israeli Air Force, and he fought during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. It's interesting to go from all that to automobile salesperson. I know. Yeah, exactly. And and he was an Orthodox Jew too, which is interesting because, you know, the Jewish identity in Paul Rubens, not obvious necessarily from his, his performances. And so, you know, he kind of grew up in Florida. He went to Boston University. And then after that, he started to audition for acting schools. So he tried for Juilliard, didn't get in, tried for Carnegie Mellon, didn't get in, and eventually was accepted to the California Institute of the Arts. And of course, you know, so obviously he wasn't just comedy, he was drama as well. But then he joined a group in the 70s called the Groundlings. You want to tell us a bit about the Groundlings? Yeah, the Groundlings, I mean, uh, I'll tell you about some notable alum of the Groundlings and you'll be pretty blown away. I mean, it's really like this workshop, you know, it's like this studio where all, really all the great comedic actors and improvisers go. It, it is a sketch and improv school, I guess you could call it. It's no different from Second City, if people know Second yeah, City. Yeah, I put Groundlings in Second City as the two big places people might go for this type of thing, like Groundlings in maybe in LA and Chicago being yeah, Second City. That's right. And Toronto, let's not, hey, come sure, on, of course, Second City. Sorry, yeah. But the Groundlings has, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a studio you show up in. It has a proper program. They hold sessions every couple of months, hundreds of students per session, and you learn improv, you learn writing quite demanding from what I understand. And if you do well, you get kind of promoted. Many, many places will have this format. You get promoted to the Sunday show and the Sunday show, you can spend up to two years as part of the Sunday shows. You're part of that group of performers. And it's like, really, I know people from Toronto, that was their goal as well to get to, mm -hmm. to get to the, the groundlings. Not everybody gets in. And I'm sure there's many more people who've just been, you know, chewed up and spit out by it. But just if you look at the the people who Pee Wee would have been either surrounded with or preceded or what's the opposite of preceded? Superseded? Succeeded. Succeeded. There it is. 
let me let me go through some of these names here. You've got Jennifer Coolidge. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. Okay. Everybody who's watched The Lotuses. Will Ferrell, obviously uh, one of the more famous ones. Phil Hartman, Will Forte, Sherry O'Terry. Remember Sherry O'Terry and Lorraine yeah. Newman? A lot of people who went to move on to Saturday Night Live have some training at the Groundlings. Pat Morita, huh? Oh, interesting. Pat Morita, the Karate Kid's teacher, everybody. Mm-hmm. And also from Happy Days, mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy, John Lovitz, Lisa Kudrow from Friends, Chris Kattan from Saturday Night Live, Jan Hooks from Saturday Night Live, yeah. Craig T. Nelson. You know who Craig T. Nelson of course, is? Buddy? Coach. Of course, you watch Coach, right? Mm-hmm. Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, just a phenomenal Jim Rash. These are just like Chris Parnell, J.J. Abrams for some reason. I didn't sure know that. Okay. Yeah. Conan O'Brien. There's, a, I mean, the list is kind of insane. And if you ever wanted to go down a um, real rabbit hole and, and some of these guys, all you know, Dak Shepard, Fortune mm-hmm. Feimster, Tom Segura, For, Fortune and Tom are like proper stand-up comedians. You don't even see any real like sketch or improv training in their, in their sets necessarily, or you wouldn't think about it. You just think they're like very, very prolific comedians or proficient comedians, but yeah, it is definitely in, in, uh, in New York, I would say UCB upright citizens brigade would compete in the groundling space. Right. right? That would be, yeah. So we have these yeah different ones. Okay. Well, interesting background. And so of course this peewee character, I guess, was kind of created when he was doing improv exercises with the groundlings. Mm-hmm. I guess the concept is a man, I didn't really know this before I started doing some research, a man who wanted to be a comic, but was completely inept at telling jokes, hmm. right? That is, that is the concept of this guy, which you don't, I didn't actually appreciate because I just think he's kind of a man child or whatever. But Yeah, it's that like, concept was lost on me as well. I did not know that. Yeah, but you can see where it comes from, right? And I guess Phil Hartman, uh, as you mentioned, I guess him and Paul Rubens were quite good friends and he yeah. helped him with this. We'll talk about what else he kind of helped out with. John Paragon also helped, right? We'll, we'll again talk about a character he played on Pee Wee's Playhouse in a second. I guess Rubens tried to audition for Saturday Night Live in the 1980-81 season. And the story is he auditioned the same day as Gilbert Gottfried. So I guess we can imagine how well that went, right? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they would be regarded as similar sort of insane performers. Yeah, I had read that you sort of, Paul kind of relented that, okay, Gilbert would obviously be hired. But I was like, but was Gilbert hired? Mm-hmm. I don't, do you remember? No. He, he was actually, he was on the sixth season in 1980. Gilbert Gottfried was hired. I had to look this up. Um, he was uh, rarely seen. His persona during SNL sketches was very different from his later, you know, mm-hmm. the Gottfried that yeah, we got yeah. to know. Rarely spoke in his uh, trademark ob- obnoxiously screeching voice and never squinted. I mean, that's that's him in a nutshell. Screeching that's so and squinting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was seldom used in sketches. So we are not, no one's going to be like, how could you forget? Of course, Gilbert was part of it. And he was barely part of it. But these are all, I mean, this is like so interesting. Like, had Pee Wee gone to Juilliard, who would he have become? Had he been on Saturday Night Live, who would he become? Like, I think this is like such a great, example of what's destined for you is what's kind of destined for you. And he was going to make the most of, I guess, whatever came or, or whatever he got rejected from. So this is, I don't know. I love it. I love right. It. And and so he kind of put his, all his eggs in one basket with this Pee Wee Herman character. Mm-hmm. So he eventually developed a stage show, but before that he was doing stand up as this character. So we'll link to this on YouTube. You can find, it says it's his first stand up performance. It's probably his first. It's his major, first HBO. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably, well, there's one with Carl Reiner hosting something. That's what I'm talking about. They, they tried to, they say, he said he just started comedy a couple of weeks ago, oh, right? That kind of thing. It's right. a kind of the good, it's the, the joke of it. It's the character, right? The character. But I think that is his first HBO special. It's his first big special. But yeah, he's he's trying to act like a kid who's trying stand-up for the first time, I guess. It's part of the shtick. Let's talk about two different things, okay? So let's we'll link to this. There's about a five or six-minute stand-up set, and then then there's the whole 
Pee Wee Herman show, which, as you're saying, aired on HBO. So let's just talk about the stand-up set, because now we have to go back in time, right? We're talking about around 80, 81. Yeah. Okay. He's doing a stand-up set as the Pee Wee Herman character. So I just want your thoughts, Ali, as a stand-up comedian. What are your thoughts on this? Because if you watch this, the audience is dying laughing. They're going insane. It was, well, not know. only the audience, but Carl Reiner, who knew a thing or two about comedy. Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks famously created... Uh, many characters together and well-regarded as like comedy geniuses. Carl did not know Pee Wee. It was pretty clear. Introduced, you can see him in the side, really laughing heartily. And then, you know, asks Pee Wee afterwards, like, come back here, take a bow. And he gets kind of like a second, you know, like a, a an ovation, like the just... The standard, like that was Pee Wee Herman, everybody. Next up was just not going to be appropriate because he had really done something special in that audience. I feel very bad for whoever was following him that day. But yeah, I encourage people to watch that. You have to turn off your 2023 brain, definitely. But at the same time, you get a feeling for that frenetic energy he had on stage. And he comes on with a bag and he's like, right away, it's like, hi, everybody. My name's Pee Wee Herman. What's yours? And people are like, oh, geez. Like, he's, it's such a great opener because it shows the absurdity of who he is. It shows the childlike nature of who he is. And I think it's such a simple, terrific opening line for a stand-up comedian. And then it's all like, he says the word, okay, I don't know, probably a hundred yeah, times in yeah. that seven minutes. Okay. Okay. So we're going to do this. Okay. Okay. So you're okay. Is that your real laugh, ma'am? Okay. Blah, blah, blah. And it's really like this incredible pacing and he's bringing things out of a bag. He's like, I do some vent ventriloquism. Here's my alligator. Brings an alligator out of a bag, a little tiny, rah, and then mm -hmm. that's it. That's all that's he does it. with yeah. the alligator. It's just, the pacing is insane. Yeah. I think it really taps into who Paul Rubens was. Another thing that I, I listened to recently was Conan O'Brien talking about Paul Rubens. I listened to the Conan O'Brien podcast and for Conan O'Brien to say twice in that seven minute kind of tribute and, and goodbye to his friend Paul, to say that he was so quick mm -hmm. and like mentally so agile and nimble. I mean, that's really saying something because I believe Conan O'Brien is one of the quickest comedic minds I've ever heard how sharp that guy is. And for him to consider Paul so sharp is really something. So I think in a way, Pee Wee Herman and that show was, was what was destined for him. He had to create something with all the energy and ideas he had. Right. So you see it on stage and, and, you know, obviously I have the benefit of knowing about the show, but I still like, I want to believe that People would watch that guy on stage and be like, okay, this guy has to do more. He has to do more. This is not enough. This is like insane. We got to see more of him in some way. And that's why there was a show. That's why there were movies. And, you know. What do you think? I was watching it, this first stand-up that we're talking about with Carl Reiner. And I was thinking like, is this like the beginning of alternative comics? In a way. And, you know, not a lot of people did that. I mean, if you consider what was happening on stage... It was at the time you have, you know, sort of Jerry Seinfeld, Richard Lewis, Gary Shandling, a lot of these comics, observational, slower paced, very funny, but not like insane. Like Gilbert Gottfried and Paul Rubens and that type of comedian would have really stood out, but people were, I think, willing to go with them. I think that's, that's the difference, right? In 1981... Audiences are not jaded. They're not like, oh, what is this now? They have not seen a hundred versions of like an insane comedian. And they're like, oh boy, entertain me. But these are people, you know, these are audiences like comedy is, stand-up comedy is relatively in its infancy. And that's what Pee Wee Herman is part of there. And that's why people are just really lapping it up, just loving it so much. And so he went on and did this Pee Wee Herman show, which was a kind of like a, a theater show, which he did. And then eventually was picked up by HBO, as you were saying, and made into a special. So if you watch the special, like I said, we'll link to it. It's very interesting because it's kind of him being in Pee Wee's Playhouse. There's like a lot of the characters that you see in Pee Wee's Playhouse, Captain Carl, John B. the Genie. These are all there. Yeah. And then some other ones that you can see morph into other characters. But it's a bit different. It's a bit more adult themed, right, Ali? This, this special than Pee Wee's Playhouse, the, the TV show. Yeah. And by the way, worth mentioning, in 1981... He did that show at the Roxy Theater. I think you just mentioned that. It ran for five months, sold out every night for five months. 
midnight shows for adults, weekly matinees for children. So think about, I, I hope people can appreciate like what kind of energy that takes to do different styles of shows for different audiences on the same days. I mean, that's pretty insane. And like midnight, so you're not really, you're asleep. You're not, you're not getting a restful sleep for five months, basically. So yeah, I think it's fair to say he really earned his time on, you know, with his show, with his movie, all this kind of stuff. He earned it. I mean, five months, how much you learn in five months about what works, what doesn't work, what's funny, what's not that funny, what people really resonate with. That's pretty amazing. And I had no idea about that. So it's interesting because I thought after that special dance when he got the show, but of course, in between was the movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, which came out in 85. It was co-written by Phil Hartman. Again, I didn't know that until I just started. I watched it like last week because I've actually never seen it. So I just, I watched it for the first time in preparation for the podcast. It's supposed to be, I guess, a parody or farce version of the 1948 Italian cinema classic Bicycle Thieves. So huh. because it's the plot is he's looking for a stolen bicycle and kind of goes across America looking for it. And a couple of interesting things about Pee-wee's Big Adventure. First of all, directed by Tim Burton and really his first big, big movie. But Pee-wee Herman, Paul Rubens, is the one who championed and, and wanted Tim Burton to be on this. And Tim Burton has said, you know, he... If not for the support, he wouldn't have had his career that he's had if it wasn't for the, the support of, of, of Paul Rubin. So he really appreciates it. He would have it. never and, had Edward Scissorhands, one of my personal favorites. And if you look at this inter, uh, 2016 interview that Paul Rubin's had, he said that Tim Burton had a style that young directors don't have, that people would love. Like They spent years trying to cultivate this style. And this guy had it from the beginning, and he understood production design and art direction, which is so obvious when you watch any Tim Burton movie, but even as early as Pee-wee's Big Adventure, right? Like yeah. the sets, the art design, the, the specific viewpoint he has, amazing. Yeah, and of course, Tim Burton brought in Danny Elfman, who at that time was the lead singer, songwriter of Oingo Boingo, this band, 80s band, and he composed the music. And again, like, Danny Elfman is now, like, a clear star in composing movies. Like, his Batman theme is iconic. Like, that is, yeah. when you hear that, you're like, okay, this is Batman, right? And, of course, these guys went on to do Beetlejuice, and then after Beetlejuice, Batman, and I guess kind of the rest is history. So, really, Paul Rubens had a huge impact on both of these guys. Yeah, made his career, too. And just just in case people don't know Danny Elfman, you know, I, I don't want to be talking from our ivory towers where we know everything, but recently he scored, he works with Sam Raimi, Gus Van Zandt, Tim Burton. These are the directors that contribute and they collaborate a fair amount. So he scored Simple Plan, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness. Goodwill Hunting, going way back, he wrote the music for Men in Black, Fifty Shades of Grey, and of course, Desperate Housewives. And The Simpsons, and The Simpsons, which is great. Oh yeah, I did The Simpsons theme, that's true, yeah. So that's how I know about Danny Elfman, to be honest, because they, they did some kind of like... I don't know what, there was some reference to him. And then I watch episodes and you see Danny Elfman's in the, in the name mm, and the credits. Yeah, he gets yeah. his own, he gets his own thing. He gets his yeah, own the beginning, um, yeah, title exactly. card. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I watched the movie. It's so interesting watching this movie. It is quite weird. You're and talking about Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I haven't seen the, the, yeah. the sequels, but I, I've seen uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's it's very strange, and I only know Pee-wee Herman from the from the TV show, the kids' TV show, which we'll talk about in a moment. And so I didn't really realize that the character he is funny and kind of a man child, but he's also a bit of a jerk sometimes to some people. Especially there's a girl who likes him in the in the movie, and uh -huh. he's, he's a bit standoffish to her. And when he's a jerk to somebody, it's hilarious. Like. It's a really interesting character. So I can see why this movie, it made like 40 million when it came out, which was pretty good back in the early 80s or mid 80s, but it became a cult classic. And I think a lot of people saw this on VHS and DVD. One of the most impressive things, I mean, the money it raked in is incredible, but really the most impressive thing is what you said earlier. He didn't have a platform. Mm -hmm. The TV show came next. We live in a world where it's TV show, right? Get out there. You get connected to audiences and then somebody gives you a movie offer. This is like, he completely flipped the script. This is so strange that he would get this movie offer, but I guess that speaks to how 
CBS executives were just like, no, this will this will fly. This will definitely be something. Our audiences will love this. And then you could just imagine when they delivered this, is this what the studio wanted? It's so strange and unusual. And I, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. And you can see how it probably influenced a lot of these other kind of movies, these kind of off-kilter comedy movies later on. So then, of course, Pee-wee's Playhouse, right? He was approached by CBS. At first, they wanted to do a cartoon series, which sounds like that proposal kind of fell flat. And basically, Rubens kept negotiating with them. And he said, I need to act, produce, direct this live-action Saturday morning children's program. Budget, $325,000 per episode. Back then, that was comparable to a half-hour primetime sitcom. And full creative control. I mean... Nobody gets that. Nobody gets that. That is wild. You know, so and of course, hopefully people have watched this. I rewatched the very first episode again for this. And again, you remember the theme, the Pee Wee's Playhouse theme. I won't sing it for you, but it's credited to Ellen Shaw. And I didn't know this till I started doing research, but it's actually Cindy Lauper who sings the uh, song. She You're to kidding it. me. Yeah, in her autobiography, she admits to it. And when Ellen you, Shaw is a pseudonym or pseudonym, uh, what do you call yeah. it? Yeah. 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 And then she... You know, when you re-listen to it now, it's obvious it's Cindy Lauper. I and mean, you even thought back then, but I guess, I don't know if she was doing it as a favor to Paul Rubens, but mm. keep in mind, in 85, 86, Cindy Lauper was huge. She was one of the biggest pop acts on the planet at yeah. that point. Yeah, and girls really just wanted to have that, fun back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, if you guys remember the show, you got Pee-wee in this playhouse, there's a bunch of puppets, Conky the robot, Terry the Pteranodon. We had Jombie, who was played by John Paragon, who was one of his fellow actors from the Groundlings. He's Jombie the genie, who grants a wish every episode. Then you have these puppets, and there's Claymation, and then there's all these regular human people who come, like Missy Vaughn. <laughs> And then people who you probably didn't realize were in this, right? Reba the male lady is S. Apatha Murkerson, who we know from Law and Order. Captain Carl was Ali, played by... Phil Hartman. Yes. And of course, everybody remembers Cowboy Curtis, played by... Lawrence Fisher, I did not, I did not put that together. That's insane. I did not put it together. Even then, I remember watching this, as I probably watched like several episodes when, because uh, I was maybe like 11. So yeah, we'll watch it when it was on if I was around Saturday morning. You know, it wasn't, it was probably aimed at about five years younger than me, but I watched a few of them. But it was even interesting at that time, right? Like it's a black cowboy. Right? Which is yeah. not a very prominent True figure enough. that you would see. And they just did it. You know what I mean? And so people called it postmodernist, you know, kind of addressed racist and sexist presumptions and stereotypes. And just having this diverse cultural origins and no comment about it. It just was, right? When you think about how ahead of its time it was for that. And there's a great interview with uh, Rubens and Rolling Stone. He basically said, He's just trying to illustrate that it's okay to be different. He's not saying it's good. He's not saying it's bad. It's just fine. It's okay. And want kids to have a good time, encourage them to be creative and question things. And that's it. And when you think about that was his goal, it's it's really amazing, you know, what, what he was able to accomplish. Such a simple goal, but something that so many kids and adults alike don't fully embrace right so it's just, it's a great message in its simplicity and has there ever been a show like that since probably not yo gabba gabba is also a very kind of weird kid show you know that my kids got into when they were younger uh it's not on anymore that's probably the, the closest to that and i guess in the end captain kangaroo bob keishan i know ali you who used to watch captain kangaroo as a kid so did i he praised it back in the 80s he said it has awesome production values and said with the possible exception of the muppets you can't find such creativity anywhere on tv which i yeah. think i would agree with yeah uh, by the way if you disagree please let us know because we'd love to find creativity yeah. like that yeah TV, if there's so. something else that you guys are thinking of yeah for sure so let's i don't know I, I kind of feel we have to talk about this even though i think it's stupid to talk about we're journalists asif we're not yeah. but yes we should talk about it well it's no because it's a very interesting comment on society a little bit on his career as well so we do want to talk about the you could call it a controversy or a scandal uh, definitely a low point in paul rubens's life and it was 1991 so 
he was on a pedestal with children and adults alike at the time. He was arrested for exposing himself in an adult movie theater in his hometown, Sarasota, Florida. I thought it was masturbating. I don't know if that's, they don't have something for masturbating. They just say exposing himself. But it wasn't to somebody. It was him on his own, right? Yeah. He was just. Yeah. There. So I don't know. I think this was blown out of proportion. Of course, you know, he, he didn't work a lot after this. I think, yeah. I think eventually things blew over, but I don't know. I think this was a whole lot about nothing. I mean, it's not like he exposed himself in a supermarket or even a regular movie theater. I mean, guys, I mean, I don't mean to like <laughs> spoil this for people, but I think a lot of people do this in adult movie theaters. I don't like, and do you think, Ali, that somebody like was complaining about like, oh my God. You're ruining the movie. Do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, so I don't know if, you know, the police were following him. Some sort, I don't, I really don't know, but. You feel like this was an unfair takedown? Of Paul Rubens, I don't yeah. think he's the only person who's ever done this before. Uh, that, that's all I'm saying. Anyway. I agree. Look, you know what? You can't, you can't extract our love for Pee-wee Paul Rubens, right? Last week, you talked about Ezra Miller. If we heard Ezra Miller was doing this in an right. adult movie theater, we'd have a very different reaction. He's a pig of a human being. It'd be a whole different thing, right? And we'd be like, oh, of course he was, right? So... We're obviously very biased, but I do understand what you're saying as well, that it's not such a bizarre thing that he was doing. If that was his kink, you know, we weren't fully understanding things like that back then as well. But yeah, I guess we're also looking at it with 2023 eyes. The other thing, of course, is that it was a kid's show, right, that he was involved with. So there, and therein was... lies the biggest problem. Therein lies the biggest but, problem. But I think, you know, I'll leave this part of it with, it's funny, I was you know, reading about this, Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman, and I just had my iTunes playlist on shuffle, and this song came up just, and it's called Bone of Contention. It's by Spirit of the West, a Canadian band. Who you love. Coast. Yeah, I, lo I love this band. And so I, I then I remembered this song when it came out. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, it's all about Pee Wee Herman. You and had no idea at the time. I, I think I figured out eventually, but it's basically about this. He said, the Bone of Contention was all our invention that's what they're saying we as the public make a big deal about this and we want to burn the playhouse down they say burn the playhouse down in the lyrics they specifically talk about Wee herman and it's like we're the ones and we love they say they stack the pyre and we light the fire right hmm. we try as to consumers, pull these people yeah. down you know, yeah. you know what i mean which sadly has not changed over time no so i'll link to that as well you guys can listen to that song if you never heard it before but i just thought it was a funny coincidence but ali just to wrap this section up what do you think the legacy is of paul rubens as a performer stand-up and as Wee herman the character well i don't like that i think about this this time in 1991 when his career took a nosedive but i have to say that I was so warmed and, and moved by the tributes to Pee Wee Herman. To people who knew him and knew him well, that is a nothing. And it really does speak to the idea of like us as consumers, the general public just sort of taking him down and loving that. But people who knew him, loved him and spoke so highly of him. And just hearing in the tributes about how he was the type of guy, if he knew you even a little bit, he would send you a birthday card to your address every year. And you'd be like, this is crazy. I met this guy once and I'm getting a happy birthday card from Pee Wee Herman. And that's who he was also, just like this generous person who did things he didn't have to do, but they were for others. You listen to Conan talking about that, listen to other friends of Paul Rubens, and it was quite a joy in preparation for this to go and watch his appearances on Conan and other things he was doing. And I, yeah, I, I think I mentioned Ezra Miller, you know, there's some people, if they do something like that, they're not welcome back in anywhere. How good a dude must he have been? How, how good a heart must he have had for people to be like, that's nothing. We don't care. But yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed reading more about him and his legacy. And I, so your question is about his legacy. And I think overall he has this wonderful legacy. You know, there's plenty of people who work with children, but their adult world is something different, right? These are two separate things. Unfortunately, this, that, that had to collide in that moment. But I think he was generally a supreme talent and as a person, a very good 
kind-hearted person, and I think that's that's basically his legacy. Asif, Hernia or Hernia? Mm-hmm. No, Hernia was Harry Potter's friend. I That's think. That's right. In, <laughs> in the books. Yeah. You know, we have a few friends who would be very furious that you uh, you <laughs> desecrate Hermione's name like that. But obviously, yes. it is Hernia, and I'm I, I know the pronunciation. In fact, I might have one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, also, my wife calls uh, Hermione Hermie One. But anyway, that's another story that's another, for another day. That's uh, jealous that's much. <laughs> so, you what? You may have one. Are we going to talk about that later? Um, listen, it was diagnosed as a hernia mm. by a ex-MTV Canada producer. So, I'm pretty sure it's mm. legit. Okay. okay. Well, given well, what okay. the alternatives Let's... are, given what the other possible, I hope it's I hope okay. it's a hernia. To be well, honest. okay. Wait, maybe we'll go through things, and you can tell me if any we of this will. resonates with we, you. Uh, we will do that. I I want to say that I'm the one who kind of brought up this subject and and kind of requested it. We take mm-hmm. requests from all kinds of people, even me, mm-hmm. and I requested mm-hmm. hernias because I get the feeling that one out of four, one out of five male friends I have have a hernia. So obviously the question is also about males. It's also about age, but let's Mm -hmm. start off with what is a hernia Mm -hmm. exactly? Okay. So it usually happens in your abdomen groin area. I think you kind of knew that. And it basically it's when one of your organs, your internal organs pushes through the muscle or the kind of connective tissue that is supposed to be containing it. Okay. That sounds pretty creepy it sounds like if that keeps happening you have an episode you have a you know one of the versions of alien starting in your stomach right yeah well yeah because it was going to look like this kind of bulge that may be more prominent with certain positions or activities and my father actually had one so i've seen the bulge i've seen the bulge and i don't have that same thing okay good good his was more in his belly and we'd be like oh can you put that thing away or put on a shirt right okay you can't have a hernia and go around the house shirtless Okay, that's that's good. It's good that you're pointing out these different ones because he had one in his belly. So you can have an umbilical hernia. So we in medicine, by the way, I think we've talked about this Do not say umbilical? We we call it umbilical. No kidding. Oh, you guys are weird in medicine. Yeah, it's funny. Yes, that's something. That's how you know someone's in medicine or not. We'll tell you how it's pronounced. It's Well, now, like, it's a trick. It's like a little, now you're in a secret society because you know how to pronounce the word umbilical. So an umbilical hernia is obviously around your belly button okay so that's very common in especially in babies because and that eventually they can kind of outgrow or that kind of correct itself on its own so you often don't have to do surgery on those you can have some in the midline of the abdomen that are called ventral hernias an epigastric one is sort of around that same area so these are kind of higher up in the abdomen so maybe that's what your what your dad had also if you've had a surgery you can have an incisional hernia, right? Because a surgery doesn't just cut through the skin, it cuts through the muscle and connective tissue underneath that. So if that there's a problem with that repair, you can get a hernia through an incision. Is that when the doctors leave some of their equipment inside your body? That's a different thing. But again, another good topic for a... <laughs> we got it is because that does happen and this isn't related to that but it does happen and, and there are ways to kind of mitigate like accidentally leaving something inside a human being so we should certainly talk about that at some point and then there's the other types of hernias which are a bit more common so one of them is a femoral one and but the one that's the most common in men i think when we say hernia that's what we kind of mean an inguinal hernia okay and so that's kind of in the groin region. I can get into a bit more detail in a second. And is is that is it named that because it's shaped like a iguana? <laughs> anyway, so but wait, okay. So let's go back to what you said it is, and is it what you described it as, which is part of your what is it internal organ, internal organ, kind of bulging out. or pushing through? Yeah, yeah. 
Is it that no matter what type of where where it's located in the body, Correct. these various ones Correct. you named, it's that's what it is regardless. Correct. It just bulges out in different parts of your intestines, yeah. right? Or in different parts of your Yeah, it could be other organs as well, but yeah, it's commonly in the intestines or that those structures in your abdomen. Okay. So how common is this? What is my one in four, one in five? Well, pretty common. It occurs in about, that's probably a bit high, but it depends on the age as well, because it accounts for 4.7 million ambulatory visits, so visits to a doctor's office in the US per year. So you're saying ambulatory has nothing to do with ambulances? Ambulatory simply means a doctor's visit. Yeah, as an outpatient, as opposed to like an inpatient visit. Yeah, You're blowing my mind, Frank. We're learning a lot of stuff today, yeah. guys. Yeah. More than 600,000 surgical repairs for just inguinal hernias are done in the U.S. every year. So it's one of the most common general surgical procedures, for sure. So it depends on, on your gender in terms of what hernia you might have. Because the inguinal hernias that we talked about, they're more common in men, nine to one male predominance, whereas the femoral hernias are more common in women, but they're not quite as common as the as the inguinal ones. And of course, there's a higher incidence in men ages 40 to 59. So for better or for worse, that's a lot of all these friends are in that age. So that could be why. So one fourth of adult men in the United States have a medically recognizable hernia, especially in that age group. When I was a young fella in a non-susceptible to hernia age group, I always thought hernias happen because you lift something heavy mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's, right? So I remember weightlifters would wear these belts around their mm-hmm, stomach mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. at least part of the reason I think there was some back stabilization that would happen there, but I think part of the reason also was to hold their stomach organs in. Yeah, weightlifting belts are actually more for, as you're saying, stabilization. That's actually the reason why why they're used. But you could have like an injury that kind of contributes to it, or you may have a defect that's there, right? Just naturally occurring defect that gets exacerbated by a lifting, a straining, coughing, right? And we'll get to that because obviously that's how we, we kind of test for it. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Those could be risk factors in terms of injury. Why, why would your, like, let's say if between me and somebody else, why would one of our intestinal walls be thinner in some places and somebody else yeah. isn't? Are we, again, again we no do one knows. not know? No one yeah, knows. Yeah. In the somebody knows. Of, somebody. Somebody knows. God. Uh, in the absence of a specific strain injury type thing, or surgery, then it just may be who you are. We know that certain things aren't not implicated in it, that smoking and alcohol use does not affect hernias, is not related to hernias. Nice. And it's a strange thing. Again, I'm not quite sure about this. A lot of studies have demonstrated that men who are overweight or obese have a lower risk of hernia than men of a normal weight. What? Yeah. So, again, I'm not quite sure about the reasons for that, but that's something. That's certainly <laughs> so, familiar. so Dr. Asif Doja is recommending that you fatten up, smoke those cigarettes, and drink that booze if you want to protect uh, yourself from hernias. Is that what I'm hearing right now? That is definitely not what I. No, I'm not your doctor, but that's what I heard from another doctor. Now, tell me about what the symptoms are, because here's here's where we get to the very personal right. part of this. this is the, okay, so I'm going to tell you about the symptoms, then we'll see what your friend and MTV producer, ex-MTV producer, was actually doing in this situation. Mm-hmm. So, okay, the most concerning symptoms is something called incarceration. So incarceration is another term that we're using, okay? And incarcerated hernia, what do you think that means, Ali, when I say an incarcerated hernia? It's in prison with no chance of parole, or does it get does it get monthly visits from a lady friend? I don't know, man. I have no clue. Okay, so incarceration means you have the hernia kind of protrude out, but it can't go back in. It can't escape. It's no. trapped. So, so it's like a prisoner who tried to stick his head through the jail cell bars <laughs> and just got it stuck there. Oh my gosh, that's so good. That's how everyone's going to remember it now. Yeah, that's that's exactly. So you can't return these contents that are in this hernia sac that's been created back into the abdomen. Exactly. So that would be very serious. That usually consists of a lot of pain, and you can have irreversible injury to those organs that are that are trapped like that and ischemia very serious and so that would be kind of intense pain 
you need to see a doctor right away if that's suspected because it could be very serious. But they could be asymptomatic and they could just be found incidentally on a routine examination or someone just kind of notices on them. Oh, uh, like so some a doctor goes, symptoms. did you know you have a hernia? And the yes, person says, exactly. oh, I have no exactly. idea anything yeah. was wrong at all. That's what it was implying when this is like up to maybe a quarter of men would, would have this. It could just be noticed incidentally on an examination. So the question is, what was this ex-MTV producer doing examining you? I don't know. I was, uh, I was walking around pantless. He saw a bulge <laughs> and he said, hold on a second. That's oh, not okay, where it's on. supposed okay. to be. No. Well, okay. Let's go through a couple other things and you can tell us more about this alleged story. So you can have, if you have symptoms though, you can have growing pain, which can be often very severe. You can have a burning aching sensation some people say a gurgling sensation i'm not sure what that is when it's in your groin but that's a that's a possibility i'm familiar <laughs> oh okay then and then it's worse with a valsalva maneuver so we've talked about valsalva maneuvers have we we have on the podcast in the past this is a a bearing down okay so if you try and Hold your breath and then push out the air, but don't let it escape, right? Or if it's like you have to go to the bathroom and you strain or bear down, right? You're doing a Valsalva maneuver to increase your intra-abdominal pressure. So that may worsen the pain or may worsen the symptoms. And you can have this less kind of severe pain. It could be just more like a heavy or dragging sensation in the groin, especially at the end of the day or after you've been doing some activity. And of course, we mentioned coughing, lifting, straining can worsen it, and it can make the bulge increase in size. And so if you have a bulge in any of these areas we talked about, and then you stop straining, or say you lie down, right? Because lying down is going to relieve your intra-abdominal pressure because you have more pressure when you're standing up. That would be suspicious of having a hernia. So do you have any of these? A lot of check marks there, Asif. A lot of check marks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, okay. That's very interesting. There was a a noticeable bulge, right? Just in this area below my stomach, above my nether regions for a while. I was like in in quite a state of panic about it. And this uh, MTV ex-producer, as much as we're um, joking about him not being a doctor, he actually put me at ease. He was like, oh yeah, that's definitely in... I said I can push down on it, and like 80% of the time, it kind of goes back in. And he's like, yeah, man, that's totally a hernia. So, and the noise as well, right? Like, it just feels like it's... Oh, that gurgling kind of sensation, you know what that is? That's very interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about how an actual physician would diagnose it, and then you can see... I resent that. He It seemed like he was very qualified, but all right, okay. Okay. I'll I'll let you do this. (laughs) So, basically, your doctor would inspect these areas sort of around your groin area and to look for bulges especially when people are standing okay then they'll ask you to strain down so that's why in like tv shows they're like oh turn your head and cough or whatever but actually you ask them to kind of strain bear down do the valsalva maneuver and they'll look for bulges or if there's a bulge there for that to be exacerbated then a lot of this bulging from the an inguinal hernia in men the bulging can kind of come through the scrotum area So basically, the physician would take their finger and invaginate the loose skin of the scrotums with the index finger on the same side that you think that there's the bulge. And then you kind of push upwards. And and there's an area called the inguinal ring, which is obviously involved in the inguinal hernia. So you kind of, they'll kind of inspect that and they'll ask you to cough or strain down and feel for any herniation there as well. And if they feel this bulge or they call it an impulse, right? Then then you'd be able to say, yeah, you have a hernia there. Okay. So, so far I'm 100% saying I have a hernia there from all these various symptoms and tests. Mm-hmm. What comes next? How do you, what is, uh, right. what is treatment? I mean, I have my MTV related information, but I think people would, would yeah. like to know officially how this happens. Okay. So the treatment is a bit different. So we talked about before the most concerning feature is this incarcerated hernia okay that's the real concern so if that ever happens you need to go to the emergency room immediately and and there's enough pain that would probably prompt you to go there as well right yeah yes my my situation is 
almost, I would say 98% painless. Sometimes there's a slight stabbing pain and then it's gone within seconds. Yeah. So let's just talk about this incarceration first, which is when it's kind of trapped and it's not going out. If there's no pain with that, your doctor, your family doctor could manage it or your primary care practitioner. If there's pain and you can't get it out, you need to go to the emergency room. So if, say, you're in your doctor's office, what they'll do is they'll put you in what's called the Trendelenburg position, where basically your feet go up and your head is down, and they'll put some gentle pressure on the area for about 15 minutes to see if they can kind of reduce the hernia back to the normal area. But again, if there's intense pain at the time of, of the incarceration, you could have what's called a strangulated hernia. So again, we're using these words, incarceration, strangulation, but it's what it means, right? You're strangling this area and cutting off the blood supply. And so you could have also tenderness, redness, nausea, vomiting. Those patients, it's a surgical emergency and you have to, they'll probably just take you to the operating room to treat that. So that's what people have to be aware of if you have that. Otherwise, you could do an ultrasound or CT scan, but you don't really need that to diagnose it. Obviously, it's just the clinical observation and the examination. So in terms of what to do, so let's say you're not having any of those acute symptoms of incarceration or strangulation. I have what's called a loosey-goosey hernia. Is that a medical term? No? Okay. I I don't. Well, it's not, it's not incarcerated, thankfully. Yes, which is good. Okay. So in general, hernia should be treated with surgical repair. That is the definitive treatment. So if you have any symptoms from a hernia, you should at least talk to a surgeon about it. In some people who have no symptoms, and it just happens to be noticed, again, like on a routine examination, and I'm not sure where you would fall in with this, with this, Ali. Mm-hmm. So no symptoms or just minimally bothersome, like doesn't really impact your daily life, you could consider just watching and observing. That's particularly true for older people, right? If you're an older man with a lot of other medical issues and a surgery could be risky, then you may just really want to do something. However, if you're just going to watch out for it, you really need to know about these symptoms that we talked about for incarceration and strangulation and know when when to seek medical attention. So that's the problem with just ignoring it is if you're not aware of what we just talked about a few minutes ago about the incarceration and strangulation, you could seriously have some serious adverse effects from that. But if you have any symptoms... If you have a large hernia, if you have recurrent hernias that keep happening, then generally they are referred and, and they're done relatively you know, soon after referral. And then so they would do this correction to repair this defect in your abdominal wall. They usually use mesh to help with that correction. Oh, and it's, I guess it's pushed back into the, the correct, intestine, yeah, pushed, yeah, just exactly. like with the fingers, pushed back in and then a mesh... Yeah, usually. Yeah, usually it's all sterile. But, you know, because remember, usually it's not continuing to stay out because that would be incarceration, right? Usually it goes in and out. So, and then you repair it. Usually with mesh, I mean, there are some controversies about mesh and not mesh, but I'm certainly not a surgeon and I don't know anything about this stuff. So I'm not pretending to know anything about that, but usually that's what's done. So I think it's reasonable for all people who have hernias to definitely see their, or suspected hernias, to definitely see their doctors talk about it. Again, we talked about some of them, like that umbilical hernia in babies that kind of resolves over time. So you don't necessarily need to do anything, but I think it's a good idea to get checked out by your doctor, get them to give an opinion on what they think. And even maybe seeing a surgeon in consultation, just because you see a surgeon in consultation doesn't mean you have to have surgery, right? But I'd rather hear from, personally, I'd rather hear from the expert on it to hear what they have to say. Again, because surgeons see this so commonly, they know which ones you'd want to operate on, which ones you don't, they know the risks of it. And there are some clinics that all they do is surgery for hernias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, right? That, that, that is their expertise. And some Shol- surgeons, Shol- that's dice? all they do. Shoulder is a clinic in which Toronto. is a weird. It sounds like they focus on shoulder injuries, but yeah, it's actually a hernia clinic. Shoulder. Yeah, so there is is lots of options in, for that. In so, my defense, I got to say one thing: I've gone for two ultrasounds, oh. just because this was really like you see a bulge in your body and you get kind of panicky. Mm-hmm. And the first one, you know, I felt she was a little bit high with the with the ultrasound, but I was like, I, I guess it has a, you know, a, a wide radius, and she'll find it. And nothing was found. Nothing came up. My doctor was like, yeah, there's nothing, nothing there. And then uh, another few months of this, and I was really like, 
yeah, getting a little bit paranoid. I knew nothing about hernias. This this MTV guy actually relieved me a little bit. I'm like, oh, it's something fairly normal, relatively normal. But I went for the second ultrasound. Also, nothing got picked up on that. So, you have any insight on why that would be the case? Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure. It could be again where they looked in terms of it could be the technique of the ultrasonographer. I'm it's not also really an interesting sure. thing that you're in that lying down position during an mm-hmm. ultrasound. Right, exactly. Your, right, yeah, you won't the, see it. You won't see it because it yeah. goes back into, I don't know. But yeah, I I don't lay up at night saying this will go away on its own. I did go check it out twice. And now having found out what it likely is, I'm going to probably go to one of those clinics. Final question from my end. Once you have this, I guess it's like a mesh screen yeah. type of thing, right? Or shield inside your intestinal wall. Are there now things that you cannot do or have to be very aware of, or is it a pretty reliable thing and you're good to, you're good to just wait for your second hernia? Okay. Yeah. So it's a good question, Ali. There is a risk of recurrence in about, it depends on the study that you read, but maybe about 2.5% of people. And of course you can have surgical complications from it. So it's not like the surgery is, is, you know, there's about a 5% chance of having some sort of complications, but that would be explained to you by your surgeon. That sounds high. Most recurrences develop within five years after the operation. And you're more likely to have a recurrence if you have had an incarcerated hernia or had to have an emergency operation, like an urgent surgery. And the recurrence rate is actually higher in younger children if they had to have a surgery for a hernia and in elderly people. Okay, lots to look forward to. So that's our episode for today. Let us know what you guys thought about this, the life and career of Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. Let us know what you guys thought about that and as well about hernias. Are you guys concerned about hernias? Ali certainly seems to be mildly concerned. He was concerned, then the ultrasound was normal, and then he was reassured by this MTV person, and then, I don't know, and then he's going to get checked out still. I don't know. Let us know what you guys think. Do you have any alternate diagnoses for Ali? (laughs) Feel free to email us. (laughs) It feels like I'm no longer here. This is just you and our audience talking about this idiot named Ali who sometimes shows up on the show. I'm here, and I'll be fine, I, I hope. Dr. V comedian at gmail.com. Dr. V comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. Ali, anything you got going on in September? I mentioned this run. The burb starts filming again. I'll also be in PEI. Also, also be in Ottawa. Ew. And hoping to see you there. I'm in a, hosting a conference for CLO, Community Living Ontario, fantastic organization that helps support people with intellectual disabilities. In If you're in Toronto, 11th of October, Accent on Toronto is a phenomenal annual comedy show. It's been running for 20 years at the Danforth Music Hall, something people can look up online if they're in this area. And other areas, I'll be, I'll be there. I'll be around soon enough. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. And I'm definitely not Ali's doctor. Medical issues we talk about for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. It's the best in a tender location. <laughs>